Darling. And I'm Hannah Glaver. We used to work together at an evangelical church that held a hierarchical position on gender roles. A church that believed God had chosen men to fulfill the primary roles of spiritual leadership. This environment created some unique and significant challenges for us and the other women among us as we strive to pursue our respective callings. From wage gaps and androcentric hiring practices to sexist standards and marginalizing expectations. We've reconnected to explore and process our experiences as well as the systemic issues behind them. And hopefully we'll shed some light on why gender hierarchy can't represent God's best for women, the church, or humanity. This is Stained Glass Ceiling. Welcome to another episode of Stained Glass Ceiling. This week we had the opportunity to talk with local pastor, friend, and former co-worker Bill Clem to revisit the Billy Graham rule. Bill has four decades of pastoral work under his belt in a variety of settings and has recently stepped into more of a spiritual direction and pastor for pastors role, bringing a lot of healing and teaching healthy patterns to many people in the Pacific Northwest and beyond. When he joined our staff, it brought a notable change to the experience of women leaders, most certainly to Eileen, Kenya, Becca, Abby, and myself, and we thought that he'd be the perfect person to invite to speak on this topic. We had a wonderful time and an amazing conversation, and we hope you enjoy it too. So we are talking to Pastor Bill Clem. Each of us on this sort of podcast project have um, some experience with you, Bill. We all worked together at the same church for quite a bit of time. Uh, you did my premarital counseling. Uh, were you Hannah's boss? You were executive. Uh, so, yeah, Exec- yeah, yeah. yeah, boss's yeah. boss. Yeah. Um, and Kenya fired you. Kenya, our producer, um, decided she no longer wanted to work for you, so she fired you and uh, moved on to a different role. How good did it feel just saying, you're done, buddy? It was a hard decision. I want to say, I didn't just fire him because I didn't like him. I love Bill. But I was wearing too many hats. I was working for three people, and I had to let Bill go. I'm sorry. Bill, can you give us a quick description of what it is that you do today? Well, I um, I lead retreats for spiritual leaders, uh, specifically uh, pastors, and um, trying to help the average um, person as leadership in a church get a focus on leading rather than on results. So that's that's kind of like my end game or hope out of that. I um, I don't work full time. Uh, I spend time uh, working with my kids and my grandkids and um, just kind of probably trying to put a work balance that I should have had for 40 years. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, so yeah, at the time when we all worked together, you were on sort of the executive level pastoral staff for the church. Um, and kind of what we wanted to sort of converse with you about is your experience with, I mean, we've been calling it the Billy Graham rule, but basically rules that are put into place wherein men are advised or um, trained to um, avoid meeting one-on-one with women, whether it's in a work context or otherwise, in order to protect their reputations. Um, So yeah, we'd just love to get your perspective on what your experience is with that practice and that sort of ministry standard, I suppose. Um, So to start off with, 
yeah, what's your experience been? What were you, how did you encounter it, if at all? And You know, it's interesting. I think almost every, every time I was um, reminded or informed of a policy or an expectation like that, it was always um, kind of like retro. You know, like I would have already uh, gone somewhere in a car with a woman or had uh, a meal uh, with a staff person or somebody in ministry. And then I come back and somebody else on staff would go, oh, what did you do? You're not supposed to do that. I mean, it, it really wasn't the idea that it was part of an onboarding process to a staffing position or anything like that. So in that way, I guess it was way more of an unspoken expectation than a you know, yeah. stated policy. We did talk about that a little bit with modesty codes as well, okay. where you, you sometimes only find the line once you've crossed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you ever practice the rule? I mean, maybe even in that context where you were told in your ministry environment, oh, you can't do that. Um, and what was that like? You know, I was a youth pastor for almost two decades. And so when I started, I was um, only a couple years older than the seniors in high school. You know, and so at that point, I was way more almost of a peer. And um, when you're dealing with, I mean, predominantly when you're dealing with youth, you're dealing with people that are just starting to mature. You're not talking about a mature person. So in some ways, the maturity of the people you're working with dictates a little bit the freedoms you have as well. You know, so I had more freedom with uh, women who are on staff with me, whether they were volunteer or paid, uh, than I did with students that I was particularly working with. You know, um, as I got a little bit older and was a big brother, that was a different feel. And then as I became a dad, so to speak, you know, and, and their parents were my age, uh, that even took on a different role, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so there was really a, even that kind of shift, and um, so I think for me the the rule wasn't something that I was trying to establish as much as trying to figure out where are people's comfort zones whether that's parents or staff or you know eventually my uh, I was a youth pastor before I was married so uh, after I was married even the role my wife or the voice my wife had into my decisions uh, started to play part of that you know um, then as I started uh, transitioning out of youth ministry into working uh, first with university students and then uh, with church staffs, it started to be more of a kind of thing where I really never, I never felt that uh, pressure to make sure that there was an appropriate and inappropriate boundary that was set and, and to make sure I was living in the appropriate. But I, um, I do know that there were people... Um, who wanted to know why I felt the liberty to do that, you know, mm. Ra rather than the idea I shouldn't feel the liberty. I, I really didn't have that too often, you know, as, as I recall. I know at one church I was at, it was a real hierarchical system, you know, uh, almost like a chain of command type thing. And um, uh, the only people that were baptizing were men, okay? Um, but we let deacons who were men baptize the people, the parishioners in our church. And we had women who were deacons. And so uh, one of the deacons was my uh, admin. And I asked her if she wanted to baptize people on Sunday. And she goes, I can do that. And I went, I think so. You know, if the bar is being a deacon, you're a deacon. Right. And so then she told one of the other uh, ladies who worked at the church. And she goes, well, I'm a deacon. And so um, I said, yeah, you can baptize people too. And then the executive pastor called me. He goes, hey, I heard that we're going to have women baptized 
baptizing people on Sunday. I went, yeah. He goes, can we do that? <laughs> I said, yeah, I think we can if we're saying it's deacon. I've never read anything or heard anything that said it had to be men, but it was just assumed, you know? Right. So, and then, I mean, like there were multiple campuses and within a month, every campus had women that were in the tank. <laughs> It sounds like, based on the experiences you just shared, that you sort of started off from a place of being comfortable meeting with women one-on-one in sort of like maybe a work meal situation. Have you, what's your experiences been, what have your experiences been with the, uh, maybe the consequences or the challenges of not being comfortable with that, of being in a place where you say, to hold our standards, we don't meet one-on-one with women? No, I, I think... Part of the issue is that if there are things that you want to have a voice into someone's life about, it it prohibits you from having that voice in their life. You know, uh, I'm sure there are things that you can talk to someone else, like you know, a woman on your staff or a, a volunteer or whatever, to go say the same things. But you miss the opportunity to be able to have that uh, mentoring or pastoring role in someone's life when when you make that rigid wall. One of the things that's good about what I've done in ministry is that I see people's potential and and invite people to it. And I don't think that if you see someone's potential and you ask someone else to invite them to it, that they hear that you saw it, you know? And so I didn't want to lose my voice, and I do think that you can lose your voice in people's lives uh, through policies. (laughs) Right. And that can be pretty vital in the context of ministry development, I'd say, of um, if you're sort of supervisor or pastor above you is um, a person of the opposite sex, like they should still have to a certain degree that voice in your life of um, what is God saying to you about your vocation? Um, what, what can you learn from me? What can I learn from you? Yeah, I remember a time when I was a student in college and I was working as a youth pastor at a church and it was an all-church retreat and they did communion at the end and the way they did communion was you'd go up to the table and there was someone behind the table that would serve you the elements. And then after uh, you'd taken the elements and you went behind the table to serve the next person. And so I remember on that retreat I went up and I don't remember who served me honestly, but when I went behind the table the lead pastor came up and I served him and I remember that. And so being able to put yourself in positions where it isn't just let me serve you, but it's actually you get the opportunity to use your gifts and serve me or our relationship and serve me, uh, that get, kind of gets stunted as well. And I think that's a, that's a tragedy because when you can look at the idea that that person who has an authority or just even a position of esteem in your life um, values you enough to let you minister to them, that's a big deal in affirmation and ministry tracking, I think. One thing we've talked a little bit about in our conversation is the idea of, well, is this practice biblical? Do we see it prescribed in the Bible that um, these kinds of prohibitions are a standard we should keep to in order to um, yeah, flourish as we follow the gospel and as we mm-hmm. follow Jesus Christ? Uh, what do you think about that? Do you see biblical evidence supporting this kind of thing? Um, you know, I do think that there are places in Scripture to call for discretion. And uh, sometimes I think that has to do with um, a person who has a reputation and you're trying to avoid being associated with that reputation. But I don't think that's a gender thing. 
you know. Um, it, I do think that it's really hard to untangle that knot between our current condition and a scripture that is uh, in some ways agricultural, in other ways tribal and familial, you know? So you're bringing all that into an industrial, isolated, um, radical, individualistic society and saying, what does the Bible say about this? And I'm kind of saying, you know, that's the beauty of Scripture is that there's something that, that is a truth below a culture. And so uh, if we're asking a cultural question, we either have to go down to what is the question below our culture and see what their culture, how they addressed it, rather than just saying, what does the culture of that day say about the culture of our day? Because there's probably a miss on that. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. there's nothing in Scripture about the Internet. There's nothing in Scripture about right. movies, you know. And so, uh, but there probably are things about communication and how we communicate with one another and how we renew our mind or guard our heart, you know. What biblical text have you heard used to support this kind of role? Um, I would say that the primary text is the one that says avoid all appearance of evil, right? Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I grew up in a time with, with um, a mom and a dad. My dad wasn't a believer the time I was growing up. My mom was. And she grew up in kind of a legalistic, you know, conservative uh, church environment, so that wasn't just used for this. It was used for cards. It was used for movies. It was used for dancing. You know, what I mean, all, all the things that I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. there, there was the the leash. You can't go over there. And so, um, but so the avoiding the appearance of evil can be really a crazy thing because we we want to say we know what it means to avoid it, but we don't really know what appearance of evil means. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. So so that's that I think is one of the champion passages. I think another um, probably goes into the whole idea of role of women. I know that's outside of our purview, but when you start talking about um, women should teach women, men should teach men, I've heard that so that there's a biblical precedent for keeping the gender separated, right? right. And so uh, those, those are primary um, verses that kind of get put into an arsenal, I think. Yeah, one we talked about a little bit was from the Modesto Manifesto, which is actually where Billy Graham and his ministry team <laughs> first sort of set this standard down. And they used 2 Timothy 1.20, which is flee youthful lusts. Okay. And so that kind of ignited this conversation of, well, what happens when you begin to see members of the opposite sex through the lens of potential objects of lust? Well, what do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so let's look at two of those. First one, I just want to look at the flee youthful lust. Um, one would be, does that take people that aren't youth out of the picture? You know what I mean? Good um, question. <laughs> a second part of it would be the whole idea, you know, discernment is actually one of the gifts, right? And, and um, I mean, it was a big-time thing of the early church. Um, St. Ignatius <laughs> has chapters on discernment. And um, when you start looking at, okay, there's a passage that says flee lust, I get that. But then you look at James and it says, uh, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So 
when you're looking at that, you need to say, hey, is this a lust thing that I need to prevent? Or is this a spiritual attack that I need to, you know, hit as a front and resist? I mean, so so just even in the whole idea of flee youthful lust, it's not just a, a broad stroke that you can paint everything with, you know, uh, as far as putting that on... I'll just tell you my bias. I think that uh, when you listen to the average speaker um, talk about what it looks like to be spirit-filled, they're usually talking about the things that have been sanctifying acts in their life. And when they talk about sin, it's usually the things that they'll never be tempted towards. Mm. <laughs> you know, and that those are the worst sins. And, you know, like, I think we could say, hey, look at the whole idea of same-sex attraction. So somebody who isn't attracted to the same sex is going to make that the big banner that they can use to, you know, hit all sin with. And so if you're a person that is fighting the whole idea of your own lustful um, pulls, and that's why you have made a manifesto or some kind of rule that says, I'm not going to go there, uh, you start making that what everybody should do rather than that's your personal conviction. And I do think that... um, being aware of your own limitations is huge, you know? So um, for me, um, it's really important that I am honest and aware with myself enough to know, am I attracted to somebody? And if I'm attracted to somebody, that puts a cautionary uh, procedure into play, you know? Right, rather than an across-the-board yeah, and way I don't, we treat each other. And I don't even think attraction is a lust to flee from, you know what I mean? I mean... Um, there is something in the Bible called sin. I do believe that. But I don't believe temptation is sin. I mean, Jesus was tempted, and yet he was without sin. So even the idea it's tempting doesn't mean that we're supposed to necessarily say, because it's a temptation, it's the same as sin. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's a key distinction. Um, do you think there are learnings from the Bible um, or examples in the Bible that model something different or have something different to say about how to handle this issue? Well, I do think that the Bible has a high view and a dignity-granting view of women. And I don't think that that has been the case in an evangelical church over the last hundred years. You know, I don't think we have a good track record. And I'll put myself as part of that. That is my heritage, you know. Yeah, same, uh, <laughs> same. <laughs> But I, um, I think, for example, when you hear Paul write in Philippians, I plead with you, Euodia and Syntyche, that you might agree with each other in the Lord. He's talking about fellow workers of the gospel, and it's two women. And somehow that was a critical issue to be addressed in that church. You know, you see uh, teachers like Aquila and Priscilla, and I read the scriptures as that they were a mentoring voice, both of them, in the life of Apollos, you know, who, who was just a, a stellar communicator. So somehow, and in uh, Romans 16, Paul Uh, mentions uh, a name called Junius, and I do believe that's a feminine name, and he uh, connects being an apostle with her. Okay, so so when we look at the idea, what, are the, what does the New Testament say about women uh, and, and avoiding, I mean, you're not going to avoid an apostle, you're not going to avoid a teacher like Priscilla, mm-hmm. and you're not going to avoid Yodi and Syntyche because they're part of the fabric of that church. So we've talked a lot about the fact that church ministry is still a largely male-dominated space. 
So what do you think that we lose when strict limits are placed on collaboration between men and women? Okay, that's, that's a fair question. Um, I think that when we say ministry is predominantly a male-dominated space, we're talking about the uh, vocational. You know, I mean, if you were to look at the church, the church is predominantly women, right? I mean, over 50% mark. And so it, it is really weird that you have predominantly men and leading predominantly women. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I'm not a good enough historian to really go there. Um, but I have a sneaking suspicion that how we just painted women in ministry in the New Testament had a radical change to uh, the role of women in the church when the church started paying for their staff. When it was a mm. volunteer position, <laughs> I have a feeling that women were allowed to be uh, co-leaders. And the minute it became salaried, now it was a man's job. <laughs> wow. I never thought of that once. Wow. <laughs> Oh my gosh. One of the reasons that I'm happy to have you here, Bill, is you're a spiritual formation director. Um, mm -hmm. You are all about discipleship and raising up people well. And I know that you've had your experience with, with burnout over the years, um, and you've watched a lot of people burn out in the same ways. And so you're passionate about finding new ways to restructure ministry in such a way that's sustainable um, and is honoring of people's time, their bodies, their mental health, everything. Um, and so I know you've put together a series of kind of cohorts that like really emphasize this overarching health. Um, and I know from knowing you and also the way that it's been formatted that it started as strictly for men. Um, but I know that's not you. I know that you want ministry to be much more inclusive. And so now there's currently a separate women's cohort and the problem that I have with it, when I heard that you were doing this, I was really excited about it. And I was like, I want to be in the cohort. I have tons of experiences in this. And I want to like be able to talk with co-leaders about burnout and about health and like how do we have healthy structures in church. But when I heard that it was strictly for men, I was, I was pretty bummed out because it didn't sound like something that fully fit with who you are and what you, I know you're passionate about. And the idea of like adding another only women's group it makes it, it that bummed me out. Um, and I know in the future you hope for integration, but could I hear you talk about one a little bit, maybe some of the reasons behind the separation and maybe some of the hesitation of some of the people in the group? Um, what, what would those fears be? Why would there be limitations there? Because I know that you're moving forward just with what you can do and what you've been asked to do. Um, but what would some maybe men and women's hesitation be in that integration? Because okay. to me, it sounds exciting to integrate, but not to everybody. Yeah. So um, kind of the charge given to me was, uh, can you develop some kind of delivery system to help pastors pursue flourishing rather than just realize that the only time they get help is when they need help? Is there anything that could be preventative rather than restorative? Okay. So... That's what was kind of the vision that was laid out, and, and I was invited to come and be an architect to that. And from the get-go, uh, I said, okay, what are we going to do with the women who are pastors? And so I have a friend. She has her Ph.D. in spiritual formation. And so I asked her if she would lead a cohort for women in ministry. And so she's led three of them now. And um, I have 
a bunch of women. I, I probably have 15 women who are going, I'm not really interested in jumping into a cohort with all women. Um, in fact, one of the women who did go into the cohort uh, asked my colleague who leads the, the, that cohort, um, hey, uh, I don't want the reading list for this course. I want the reading list that the men do in their cohort. Yeah. So we started integrating the same you know, formational literature. And that was that was helpful for me, you know. Eileen, you asked me what what one of the things we miss, and that is one of the things we miss is that we don't realize. Okay, there's got to be probably three sets here. What are the things that are unique to men in ministry? What are the things that are unique to women in ministry? And then what's the common shared pool, which I think is probably larger than the unique pools, you know? Totally. <laughs> so so that kind of became the impetus, and. Um, uh, I have an associate now who um, she wants to lead a cohort, and I believe that she'll probably have to field one with women first because it's just the nature of our clientele. But she and I are working on trying to figure out how are we going to open one up that's um, uh, both genders together. And I think that it would be important for her and I to lead it together so that uh, we model what we're inviting people to, into, you know. Uh, if I was going to say what's the biggest fear and why would women be more interested in being in a cohort than men are going to be interested in being in a cohort, I would say women look at the cohort in a lot of ways as an equipping thing and men look at it as a place to be honest and maybe have an attachment that they're not getting somewhere else, so I'm going to have a collegial relationship with some men, okay? Mm. But I have a feeling that there are a lot of men who one of the issues they're going to wrestle with is porn, okay? And I have a feeling that if a guy were to reveal that in a cohort that's mixed gender, that he's afraid he's going to be judged right away, you know? So men are saying, no, I need to be in a cohort where it's just us guys and we understand what we're wrestling with rather than somebody who goes, I mean, I I don't understand that. And to me, that's part of what we miss is the idea of, okay, if there are two different values that are colliding uh, or two things that just miss each other even, um, how do we still make that a place where we become soul friends? You know, and and that's really what, like when I form a cohort, I say, you don't have to be best friends the rest of your life with the people who are in this cohort, but I want you to learn the skill of being a best friend in this cohort. If you could dream something different, like in a best case scenario, like gender fears off the table, what would co-leading and co-pastoring and even developing alongside men and women what would that look like? Like, we know what the limits are and we know what's not happening. What would, what would it look like? And maybe even pull in like a biblical understanding. I think it would be way more team. Um, most people, the minute you put a limitation on them, that's what they want, right? I mean, that's the whole story of the garden. I mean, I'm sure that the Trinity is up there going, oh my gosh, look at this garden. And they're focused on the one tree they can't eat of rather than the hundreds that they could, you know? And that's where I'm going is that tree. And and so when we look at the idea that um, we're going to reserve a particular office for men, they've got women are going, that's the office I need to have, right? And rather than the idea of, okay, what would it look like if we, in a sense, didn't have some kind of power differential to those, you know? So like, um, 
when you have somebody who goes, men are this way, women are this way, and you put it into a marriage, okay, um, it falls apart real quick when you start to say, so how are we really going to live, you know? Um, the wait till your father gets home kind of phrase really is not a good phrase for building relationships. It's just put somebody over an authoritarian uh, camp, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because you're robbing them of the um, the relational component. So like when I, when my children were young, I have four kids, and so Wednesday was breakfast with Dad, and we just rotated all four kids. They all got a Wednesday with Dad because I wanted... I wanted conversations before I had to have the uh, disciplinary conversation. You know, I wanted to be building an account when I had to make that withdrawal. And, and I don't think that we have any concept of building an account between men and women. We're just looking at the idea, how can we have a transactional interaction? You know, oh, we're going to have an event at Christmas. Quick, get some women on the committee because we need to talk about decoration. You know? <laughs> So that becomes part part of the issue. I mean, like, um, uh, I've been married twice, and both uh, wives that I've had, and I don't think I sat down and vetted them on skill sets, um, but both women, um, you know, like my first wife, there was a uh, Christmas uh, where I said, hey, what do you want for Christmas? She wanted a miter saw, a power miter saw, you know? I'm going, okay, and my job was to write the Christmas letter, okay? Uh, and then... Um, my current wife asked me one time, hey, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, well, I'd like an Instapot, you know? And she's kind of going, what? You know? Uh, and so those are things that we traditionally think are male and female uh, rather than the idea, hey, in the context of uh, a relationship, what are our skills? What are our passions? What are our abilities? And, and kind of sharing those rather than roles dictate what those can be expressed as. One thing that's interesting is the focus of these rules often seems to be on avoiding the appearance of sin, so sort of a reputations thing, rather than sinful behavior alone, right? Um, so this seems to create a barrier even between us and the people we trust. So even a you know a woman in your case or a man in my case who I trust, there's still this potential for it to be out of bounds in the context of what this rule is saying. Um, why this focus on appearance and reputations? Like, do you think that it's a valid priority for people in leadership roles? That's a great question. You know, I've known people both in ministry and in other vocations where there's close uh, interaction with the opposite sex. So let's say, for example, um, I know a guy who was a school teacher. And one of the students in his class accused him of an inappropriate relationship. And he, boom, he was immediately on suspension. You know, there's an investigation. And um, six or seven months later, he was vetted, but the reputation's already shot, you know? And um, I know a couple of men in particular that, that that kind of accusation thing happened to them and they just left the education field. So guarding a reputation is kind of a cautionary tale to other educators after that, you know. So so you bring that into the realm. I've known pastors who uh, will tell me that they've had, actually had parishioners, they'll say, if you don't have an affair with me, I'll tell the congregation you did anyway. You know, that's kind of a rugged thing what are you what are you going to do with that you know yeah. so i do think that there's a reputation to guard but i don't know if the way to repu- to guard your reputation is to 
have like complete separation. There are, there are ways to, you know, I mean, at, at best, uh, um, I don't know, maybe it's at worst, but, but at, at least you should be able to have a lunch with somebody of the opposite sex in a catchable place. So we go to lunch, and it's just the two of us, but we go to lunch at a place where we could get caught having lunch you know, by other people rather than the idea that we have it in some intimate setting where nobody's ever going to see us. I mean, Brian Houston's a great example, who is the um, leader of Hillsong, who has just resigned over all kinds of charges, right? But one of the things that they're still they're, that come, becomes a focus is that there was over a 50-minute uh, period where he was alone with a woman in a hotel room. Okay, mm. and it doesn't matter whether he claims it wasn't or not. It's that appearance that's damaged a reputation, uh, and it was a not, in my opinion, a non-catchable environment. You can't catch him doing the right thing, so you assume he did the wrong thing. Okay, and so I, I do think that there are some things about a reputation that are valid, but I think you can guard your reputation in this one area. <laughs> and not be nearly as diligent in five other areas that are going to offend a whole nother group of people, you know? And so I'm not saying you curate a reputation to be popular or to be credible. I am saying you curate a, re a reputation around as much as you can perceive, you want to be perceived as a per particular kind of person. One thing that... I really appreciated about you when we were all working together was the efforts you made to create inclusive spaces that sort of normalized hmm. like healthy collaboration between men and women, uh, directors and support staff, pastors and all that. Um, you created a meeting at a brewery uh, that we did every Thursday um, that all the pastors and directors were invited to. Um, and it was an intentional move away from a more siloed space for the people within those groups. Yeah. Um, do you think that is an approach to um, maybe a better way, an alternative solution to, to roles like this? Do you think like normalizing sort of healthy collaboration, I think, I guess, huh. would you say that's a, a step in the right direction? Yeah, I think anything you can do to for yourself to see men and women as your peers. Um, I, I think that when you're a spiritual leader of a church, you can get caught in this thinking that no one's my peer. Mm. The only person who's my peer is another lead pastor. You know, like when I put together a cohort, if I have a five or six lead pastors, they, they think he gets me. But if I put three lead pastors with a youth pastor and a worship pastor, they don't understand what I go through. And, you know, I get it. There are, there are unique pieces to it. But, again, that robs maybe some emerging leaders <laughs> from being able to pick the pocket of some established leaders, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and so whether it's by rule or by gender, I, I think that the more we can do to... to level the playing field so that we don't see that I'm, I'm above you, you know, and so I can't invite you into my world. Um, I don't think anybody says that uh, 
in a way that they have articulated it because it's a strategy. I think it just leaks out as kind of like the operating system that they don't know they're running programs on. Right. It's not overt. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's like a cultural practice. Mm, Yeah. One of the things that probably shaped how I view things is that the first 15 years of my ministry was with youth. And so you build ministry teams rather than elder boards. So your ministry team has guys and girls on it. You know, you're not saying, oh, the only people on our ministry team can be high school boys. You know, it's guys and girls. And my thought was that I wasn't building a ministry to students. I was building a ministry of students. And so I had to figure out ways to... um, help my students have their own ministry, right? And I remember having a ministry team meeting one time, and this girl goes, hey, you know what I hate about our ministry? And I'm going, that's my favorite evaluative question. What do you hate about our ministry? You know, I go, what? And she goes, you always seal the deal. I said, what do you mean? She goes, whenever there's an invitation, whether it's to trust Christ or to uh, yield a part of your life to him, you do it. How about letting us do it? And that was a great observation from her for me to have to rework rather than, you know, I I actually said to her, give me an idea. What is that going to look like? And she goes, how about rather than ending with a proposition, you end with a question. So, and then let us have time to discuss it among ourselves. Mm. And, And that was really helpful for me to get off of center stage and to be more like creating an environment for ministry to happen peer to peer with all of them. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like there's kind of this elephant in the room with rules like this of one of the reasons it's particularly problematic for women in vocational ministry is the gender hierarchy that sits in the, I don't know, doctrinal space of a lot of these environments. And it seems like there's this elephant in the room of, well, if we had more women in those spaces, there wouldn't be such an access problem for women as they try to grow, whether that's spiritually and leadership development, um, and I don't think it's it's merely a question of like, well, if we had women in leadership, then they could mentor women and the <laughs> men would mentor we- men, but it would be more of a an inclusive culture around those different ideas mm-hmm. that when you've um, narrowed your leadership presence to, you know, a certain population, whether it's um, men of a certain age or white men or, you know, whatever, <laughs> um, it limits the ideas that come into that space because those perspectives aren't there. Yeah. And I, but I don't think we're even aware that they're not there. True. You know? um, I don't know what would be most helpful to a woman unless I ask. Mm. And so when I'm not asking, I'm assuming I know what's most helpful for them. You know, and so when you're saying what perspective is gained in a lot of ways, I mean the honest answer is I don't know. I'm sure it's bigger, but I don't know what right. it would look like. You know. <laughs> I remember you shared a story about how, I think it was with a neighbor, that you, you're like, well, I, I don't know your perspective. Can I have a relationship with mm-hmm. you? Like, invite me into a perspective and a story. Do you think it's the same transferable kind of like philosophy um, with women? Where it's like, I, I don't know unless I'm living life relationally with other people, if I'm not bringing in another perspective. The importance of like, kind of like, expanding your facets of understanding. You live here and you didn't know this was happening simultaneously. So I think that um, there's a couple uh, 
couple qualities that if we could differentiate them could help. One would be social responsibility. I would think most people feel a sense of social responsibility for equity, okay? Um, and I think the younger you are, the higher that feel, okay? Um, but I think that there is an unfelt need for the need to be empathetic. And those are radically different. Um, you know, if we were to just take something like, I, I doubt if you could find somebody that doesn't think black lives matter. But I think you could find a whole bunch of people who don't know anybody who's black. Okay, uh, that's a social responsibility with low empathy, right? Mm. And so uh, the whole idea of, yeah, I think women should be considered as equals. I mean, nobody's going to fight you on that, you know, but they don't know what it's like to not be treated as an equal. Okay, so like um, I directed this university ministry and um, uh, on Mondays we would have our staff meeting and on Tuesdays we would have our event. And so on Mondays I usually went over my talk with the staff, you know, and, but it was usually a week out, okay? And so I go, here's what I'm talking about, here's what I'm thinking of using as illustrations. And I remember one time where two or three of the staff People said, you can't use that illustration. It's too emotionally gripping. It'll hijack. We, we won't stay with you. Okay? And I would think the average communicator might go, perfect illustration. You know, if it's going to just captivate the room rather than listen to uh, people that are 15 years younger than you and give them the authority to edit your talk so that you can talk to their peers, but you've let them be your peers in crafting your talk, you know? And so um, if you really can learn the humility of letting people speak into your life, it, it does a lot to um, take away the detonation of authority, you know? If you live with no talking, the, the talk is my responsibility, the music's your responsibility, the care groups are your responsibility, and we can all live in our own little silos, then we have to have some kind of referee to call who's out of bounds. But when, when we have blur, <laughs> so that we all own to a very real sense what the talk's gonna be, what the worship's gonna be, and what care's gonna look like, then um, the authority kind of melts away a lot. Hmm. But the person with the authority has to give it away. The other people can't demand it. Two things. One, that was amazingly put. Two, I'm very <laughs> impressed that you knew what you were going to preach about on Sunday, the Monday before. <laughs> 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 you prepped. You, you had a plan. It's not Saturday. I do want to widen the lens a little bit from the role we're talking about today to just the bigger issue of gender hierarchy. Um, and one thing that always spoke to me, and I know many of the women around me, about your, um, your modeling of a more equitable place for women was that you declined to become an elder at the church we all worked at together because women were not allowed to become elders. Um, can you share a bit about that? Um, what were you hoping to model both to the women in our community and the leaders in our community as well. Okay. I don't know if I had a, hey, leaders, take note. This is what I want you to learn. Sure. You know? <laughs> um, I do know that um, I had a conversation with a lot of women who felt like they couldn't do everything in the church because they couldn't be an elder. And uh, I had a bias that kind of felt like you can do everything you've been gifted to do. <laughs> um, if, you had my, if you had my job, 
um, what would it, what would you want to do that you can't do? So I was trying to let them see that uh, sometimes a power differential is a perceived impediment on what you want to do, you know, rather than the idea that it's an actual one. Mm-hmm. Now, I I do agree with the idea that. Um, if someone's called a director of a ministry and someone else is called a pastor or somebody's called a pastor and yet there's this group of elders that all the pastors are uh, report to, that that can come to a place where you feel like I am responsible to someone else for what my ministry will look like. And But I, that wasn't our context. You know, Our context really was that there, there were different um, roles. And... and elder role didn't keep the day-to-day ministry from happening right. in, in our church. Do you think positions on what's often called women in ministry um, that include sort of a man-over-women hierarchy, even if it's just, hey, the elder role is off limits or we don't ordain women, um, do you think that kind of hierarchy marginalizes women in those environments and why or why not? It probably marginalizes women because of the unspoken assumptions and you know all that's involved in making that your DNA or culture, right? Um, we we look at we don't necessarily look at it as a, the authority as much as somehow that's who God's going to work through. Maybe that's authority, you know what I mean? And so we've said at the highest level of God's working, men are responsible. That that's a sad place, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that regardless of your hierarchy, we can't have a organization that makes uh, tiers of value. You know, I had a friend who pastored a church down in Florida, and um, he really did do a team-led church where there were, I think, 10 or 12 guys on staff, and I don't know if they were all guys, okay? Um, but he said, when we're... In staff meeting, I actually bring a gavel, and um, whoever's the person that, ha- you know, like when we're doing worship and we're talking about the worship, whether it's the department or we're talking about a given Sunday, I give the gavel to the worship pastor, and, and they are the chairman of the Judge meeting. Judge of the yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah, And um, so I said to him, how's that working? Because you can't have one person on your staff that's insecure. You know, mm. they've they all have to wield the gavel at some point and, and let someone else have authority to speak into what might limit their programming, mm. you yeah. know, and, and I <laughs> think that's, <laughs> I think that's the big, big thing is that if you've got an old boys club, you don't feel like you're going to get limited, mm. you know, and the minute you let a different perspective come in, that perspective might crowd me, you know, and, and, um, I think that's a big deal is letting yourself get crowded. Um, you know, I've been in ministry long enough. I was teaching a um, spiritual disciplines class one time and I had a pastor in the room. He goes, why haven't we heard about this before? And I don't, I don't know what disciplines I should be practicing. I hardly even know what gifts I have. I said, but I bet you know your entrepreneurial score, don't you? And he goes, yeah. And he told me the number. You know? <laughs> and, and when we think that the ideal lead pastor is an entrepreneurial person, and a lot of times you know, there are questions like, why do we love narcissists as leaders, right? Um, so you put those two together, you really have a toxic cocktail, right? A uh, narcissist and an entrepreneur. Um, and when you do that, 
you probably have somebody who their independence index is way off the chart. And so they don't even think about the idea of including someone else because it's just going to be a drag of momentum. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I will deploy people rather than engage them. (laughs) In a hierarchical system, accountability means who can hurt you or who Mm -hmm. can fire you. you That's terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, as a dad, I, you know, had a four-year-old daughter I was accountable to. She can't fire me, yeah. you know, like Kenya. Uh, she can't. She can't fire me uh, from being her dad, right? But she matters enough to me that I would change my life for her, mm. and that—that's what this is. I mean, I—I I was listening to a um, professor from NYU who was one of the framing voices in um, uh, just looking at critical race theory. Okay, and I know that's a big topic that we're not talking about today. But one of the questions he was asked was. Um, do you hope that white people will come to the place where you go, oh, we were wrong? Because, you know, I guess my hope really is that they would come to the place of saying it wasn't worth it. Mm. You know? And, and that's kind of where I would hope pastors would get to. It's not worth the momentum, the bigness, the popularity, the amount of likes or followers I have. It's not worth it to have not included the rest of God's family in what I did. Yeah, wow. Kenya's clapping. (laughs) Kenya's clapping. (laughs) So last question. Um, What would you say, and I feel like you've covered a lot of ground with this on a big say, but just um, maybe honing down to the practices. Um, What would you say are the most important practices the church needs to address in its treatment of of women? You know, that's an interesting thing because I think there are, is a huge difference between putting something in policy and asking people to kind of, in a sense, come up with their own rule of life. And I understand rule of life would speak in the community, but uh, like what you're talking about with the Billy Graham rule, if that becomes part of uh, what we're doing as a church, then whether it's your conviction or not, you're responsible for it, right? But if I'm saying, for example... um, I feel comfortable uh, having dinner with uh, a colleague on my staff or a colleague in my church, as a, and she's a leader, and um, someone else doesn't feel comfortable. I don't want to be at the place where they have to be comfortable because I am, and I shouldn't be at the place where I have to be uncomfortable because they are. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. At the same time, when we're talking about accountability, um, I think you do need to figure out who are the voices in your life that matter enough that you would change your behavior, you know? So, um, for example, um, I was a youth pastor and I had a, a girl in my youth group who got raped, okay? And as the youth pastor, I'm going to be part of the voice that um, leads her to healing. I'm not going to be the only voice because obviously there's going to be some triggering just to having a male speaking in her life, right? But I'm... I knew enough to go, I don't want her to have to come to my office because I don't want to have to walk through the hall. I don't want to have to go, who saw me come in here? Are they going to ask me what the issues are? So, you know, we met at my house. But at the same time, um, I walked through the situation with my wife and said, okay, what's this going to look like? And she just made sure she was in the house. She didn't have to be in the room, but she was in the house. And whether that's the appearance of evil or whether that's just the idea, you know, um, 
we work with people who are not always stable. This, this girl wasn't stable in, in trying to recover from this trauma, right? And so an unstable person, whether you lead a recovery ministry or whether you lead a divorce recovery ministry, there are people that are, if you were to talk to them five years at, into their recovery, are going to be way more stable than they were the first six months. You know, So there's just some... Uh, discernment that needs to be there rather than just this hard, fast rule, no women or, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because um, uh, I think who the person is uh, has a lot to do with what the boundaries should be. Um, but again, see, that takes it out of this whole realm of transaction and keeps it as a relational dynamic. And, and that's really the interesting thing about ministry is that you have the structure that almost feels business-like, but you have this dynamic that you're trying to create that's family. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and you don't have that in necessarily in the marketplace. You know? And so you can have different rules at work outside the church than you do of, of work inside the church where you're, you're having to build a familial connection, not just an efficient one. You know, families are not efficient. Friendships are not efficient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can True. I ask a question about continuing on that accountability track? What If you could dream a system that had healthy accountability within a church that's more than just business, that's healthier maybe than a dysfunctional family, <laughs> what, I don't know, dream a perfect world. What would that look like? <laughs> oh, man. Um, I've never seen it, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, I've had moments where I felt like that that was good and that was um, could have been better, you know. Um, but uh, I know, for example, um, because I was responsible for overseeing a staff, um, I was responsible for how we would go about recruiting and hiring staff, and so. Um, a part that wasn't as healthy was when we were looking for, uh, at that time we were looking for a women's ministry pastor, okay? Um, I created a team of eight women. Um, I should have had a couple men on it, you know? Um, and yet, I think most of the women would have said, why did they speak into, you know, because they don't necessarily have an integrative flat view they thought since you guys have your own little sandbox to play in this is ours okay and, and that's part of the dysfunction you know um but the other part was that um i we met for three months as a committee before we even opened it up to make sure that we were on the same page of what discipleship looked like okay so then we searched and we've uh came down to a short list and that's when the inter- the conversations with the elders came into play you know and a couple of the elders walked out of the room and looked at me and said you really discipled these women that's part of what it looks like to have uh, a peer environment is i'm not just connecting with these women to get the job done um if we were going to disciple people to be elders why wouldn't we disciple people to call a pastor on the staff you know mm-hmm. uh, and so being able to look at the idea they are my peers. They're going to make the decision. I'm not the kill switch on what they're going to do. My job is to equip them to be the best search committee ever. <laughs> and so that's, that's what I tried to do. You know? Yeah. I think also I'm thinking like in terms of like, is there hope for healthy accountability? What would that look like? Whether it's doing well and choosing 
being in a place where you're speaking into pastoral like hiring or maybe if something is off or maybe just speaking into the overarching health of a person and into one another's life is is there space for something like that and what could it look like well again i think when you're using the word accountability we've got to use it as a relational invitation rather than a whip you know <laughs> we're not cracking the whip to keep you good we're inviting you to be who you've been designed to be in Christ and so um having accountability structures when we're going to agree these matter to all of us and so that's why we're going to do them and you matter enough to me that if I don't do them I'm going to need your help in either rebounding because I've offended you or violated our covenant um, and I need not your judgment and not your punishment I need your support and encouragement you know and um, that's rare error because it again we're so used to a um, a um, an employee and um, you know work structure that we impose on a church. So the whole idea of what is what does accountability and equitable uh, employment look like, and it really does need to be reevaluated in terms of uh, how do we equip somebody to follow Jesus. You know, so if if um, a woman, for example, is a gifted teacher, and we've told her you can only speak to sixty percent of the church. Um, we haven't really necessarily invited her to a, a, a ministry path that lets her grow to her potential. We've, we've given her, you can grow within your sandbox, you know, uh, called women, and you can have women's ministry. And, I, and I'm not a place, you know, I, as weird as it is, I mean, I'm sure every complementarian that listens to this thinks that I'm not one. You know, uh, and there's probably mutualists who'll go, yeah, you just kind of got some complementarian going on in there, you know. <laughs> and um, I don't know if I comfortably wear a label, uh, but I do feel like there is a place for men and women to complement each other uh, together rather than the, the best way for us to complement each other is to just do exactly the same thing. You know, I think I'm a better team member when I cannot be ashamed of my maleness <laughs> and you're a better team member when you can be your femaleness, you know, but when we both have to say, those are our differences, so let's get down to a bottom line of our commonality. Um, that's no different than if we just said, because you're different, you're not going to get to play with us, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one thing that strikes me about the rule we're talking about is it is sort of a a lazy way to deal with that complexity. Um, but I think as you articulated, it's not worth it. <laughs> There's a detriment that's a little bit too impactful for so many people in our midst. And even our overall, the overall flourishing of our community, right, is there are real problems to tackle there. You know, you mm -hmm. brought up some really key terms there, I think. Discernment, accountability, um, and relational equity, that's a little bit harder to dig into, a little bit more time-consuming, but it's definitely worth the effort, it yeah. sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do think that if we have... Um, if you are given all this authority because of your position, then you don't want to share it. Mm. But if we start seeing ourselves as the only authority I have in someone's life is how I matter to them. If I'm a pastor in a church, my my influence is going to grow 
the longer I'm in, in the relationship with those people, right? Because they're going to have crises where I get to be the person that helps them walk through their crises. Um, there's going to be young people that come up into the church that I'm going to get to do their wedding. You know, um, I was talking to one pastor who's getting ready to retire, and I said, so what bugs you the most? He goes, when people just don't respond to the gospel or lie to me. And I go, well, give me an example of people lying to you. He goes, well, like I had this couple that was in our church that, since they were kids and I was doing their premarital and I was asking whether or not they were involved sexually and they told me no. And he goes, the more we got into it, she was already pregnant. He goes, it just really bugs me. And I said, well, okay, so can I just ask you, and I'm kind of going, maybe your empathy score is really low or something because <laughs> these people have grown up with you being their spiritual, you know, in some ways father, but their spiritual leader their entire life. And then you're asking them to come clean on a sin. And maybe you haven't talked to them about anything ever personal like that before. Um, of course, they're going to want you to think well of them. You know, the, the lie wasn't just uh, because they... Yeah, we'll just lie about it. It was more, I mean, there's shame that's, you know, part of the, the thing. The, the whole idea, I'm going to let you down. You're going to disapprove of us. Maybe you won't even do our wedding. You know, there's all kinds of things that play into that. And for you to just make this one assumption that they are liars is terrible, you know. Uh, and that same thing can happen when... I don't know you, and so you don't include any women in your discussion, so I think that you're a chauvinist, rather than the idea, you've never really even considered the idea that there's a bigger perspective and give you any kind of benefit of the doubt, you know? Yeah. Um, and on the other side of a guy saying, I've never really thought about the idea that bringing in uh, the perspective of some of the women in my church could have helped me have a bigger perspective rather than simply going, okay, I have this reasoned out thing and I don't want to add the emotional piece. And you know, that, that is just such, mm. um, such a debilitating uh, category yeah. to, to, put, to put any of us in. You know, um, uh, If you were to talk to my wife, she would say, when I need to talk to Bill, I need to ask him the question, what are you thinking? Because all he's going to tell me is what he's feeling. And, you know, and with her, it's exactly the opposite. I need to ask her what she's feeling because she's had a, a abusive past where feelings get stuffed or ignored or escaped from. And so they're not her friends, you know. And um, so you could walk into our relationship and go, wow, you guys have your roles reversed. And go, no, this is who we are, hmm. you know. Yeah. <laughs> One of the most encouraging parts um, of knowing you, Bill, is the way that um, you have spoken value into my life, and I've seen you speak value into the life, lives of other women. Um, I, I think in part that has to do um, with the fact that you come to the table not knowing all the answers. Um, and I don't, I don't assume that like you started this way. I feel like you've you've grown into this much more empowering and inclusive, specifically to women, um, pastor and leader and shepherd. Um, but it starts with low ego. And I think there's a sense of curiosity and wonder that you're almost entering into a relationship um, almost as a student. Hmm. And you, you could come with um, a lot of answers. And based on like the years that you've been in ministry and your wisdom, 
all of that, you could come knowing basically what's going on, like like in a counseling situation or like even on a church planting situation. You're like, this is the structural issue. This is the issue in the marriage, like whatever it is. Um, but one thing that's unique about the way I've seen you lead um, is you come in with that knowledge and with that wisdom. And then also you have space to listen, um, that there's an opportunity to learn. Um, if you could encourage future pastors, both men and women, um, kind of in that vein on maybe something that you've learned in that space, what, what could that be? Um, coming to, I mean, it's definitely anti how we're brought up with our modern understanding of theology. It's very scrappy. Um, you have to always know the answer. Yeah. You have to be right. You have to have the correct theology. You need to know it from front to back and your enemy's theology so that you can like beat them to the punch and then maybe beat them down as well. Um, what is a way that we can dream of doing something different and maybe some beauty behind it? I think I spent the first half of my ministry being the person you described and that you say I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My wife had cancer for over six years, and then she died. And um, I'm sad that she died. I wish she'd never had cancer. I don't believe she did anything wrong or I did anything wrong that that was God's punishment. I believe that any punishment any of us receive for our sin uh, is on the cross. You know, Uh, if God deals with us, it's in loving discipline, not in wrathful punishment, you know. Um, But when my wife died, um, I mean, this this is a weird thing, but for 31 years, I, I had an identity called husband. And in one minute, I wasn't. And I had all these behaviors of husband behavior that no longer had an anchor for why I would behave like that, you know? And I had to kind of go through an identity crisis of who am I if I'm not a husband, you know? Do I not eat cocoa puffs because my wife didn't want me to and now I don't have a wife? I can eat cocoa puffs. You know, whatever happens to be the the case that there is just... um, I had to go through an entire reorg because I didn't have an identity in Christ. I had an identity from my environment and my circumstances. And I think as long as a pastor describes himself primarily as a pastor, then they've got to play the role. And that's knowing the answers or whatever, you, you know, the vision of being a pastor is going to be that you step into rather than the idea that I'm a Christ follower and... Um, I know some of the freedoms of that, and I know some of the uh, limitations that are imposed on me because of that. And they aren't all the same for every person. So my, my job isn't to make you have mine, but my job is to make sure that the ones you have um, aren't misplaced that you don't have values because you're a man or values because you're a woman. You have values because of your Christ following, and they get expressed in the roles you have. They get expressed in the environment and the relationships you have. But we don't have nearly the grounding in our identity in Christ that allows life to throw different circumstances our way and not be rocked by it. Thank you so much, Bill. Yeah. For talking to us. So good. We got to do this in person, which is amazing. Haven't haven't gotten to catch up in a bit. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's been great. I hope you got some stuff you can use. Oh my gosh, a lot of yeah. good stuff. <laughs>
Oh, we love Bill, and we are so grateful to have had him join us on this episode. While this is a podcast with an emphasis on a woman's perspective in ministry, we did want to have an honest conversation with both sides of the equation. We think that conversations held like this with friends like Bill are a perfect example of healthy peers in ministry. It breaks down gender barriers, age differences, and simply embodies the camaraderie of people who respect one another with nothing to lose and only a broader understanding of each other to gain. for all of us at God's table. In the same way, may we all find ways to create space for one another, helping each other up along the way. May we hear each other well, listening to our stories, perspectives, with a sense of wonder and curiosity. May we learn the humility of speaking into each other's lives. There's space for you. There's space for all of us, not created by our strength, but gifted freely. May we too extend that free gift to all. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Stained Glass Ceiling. Thank you so much for listening. We wanted to extend a special thank you to Bill Clem for his interview today, to Eileen, Kenya, and Becca for all your hard work keeping this podcast alive, and as always, to Alan for mastering. Today's episode featured music off my record so far so long, and as always, we will list any resources mentioned in today's podcast in our show notes. Now, we are taking a break for the holidays, but we do have more episodes coming up in the new year. So hang tight and love each other well in the meantime.